Hello and welcome to Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. I'm your host, Harrison Greenbaum, and I'm so excited to be bringing this episode, episode number seven. Uh, it's been such a, an adventure, uh, starting from Matt King and getting all the way uh, to Todd Robbins. Uh, I could not be more excited. Uh, he is somebody I've known since I was a kid and have admired uh, for over two decades. Now I'm showing my age. Um, but you can uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Harrison Comedy. Find out who the next guests are. Follow uh, When This Goes Live as a podcast on iTunes, which is coming soon. And uh, this is presented by the International Brotherhood of Magicians. If you'd like to join them, if you're not a member already, ready, go to magician.org slash join the IBM slash join. And uh, on Friday... At 5 p.m. EDT, uh, there will be a showing of Billy Toppett by Lance Burden. That's something that IBM is putting together. So make sure you check that out. This is every Monday and Wednesday at 7 p.m. EDT, 4 p.m. PDT. Uh, and oh boy, do we have uh, a guest for you. People are so excited already. There's some can't waits. waits. There's people from all over the place uh, tuning in right now. Uh, I first met Todd, I actually spoke to my father today, and he reminded me that I met him as a kid in Coney Island, which is a place that uh, my family loves very, very much. Uh, and then as a child, I was uh, one of the first charter members of Monday Night Magic, the longest running off-Broadway magic show, uh, and uh, have gone from being a fan of the show to being a headliner of the show. And one of the reasons I was able to do that is because of the generosity and kindness of this legendary man I'm about to introduce to you, uh, one of my favorite performers, nay, people on this planet, make some noise, make some, get excited, coming to you from his mausoleum somewhere in New York City. Give it up for Todd Robbins, everybody. Well, hello. Hello, Harrison. How are you? Yes. I love it. This whole show is about trying to find out where the bodies are buried, but I guess they're just behind you. We, yeah, we shouldn't be talking about that online, please. <laughs> you never know who's listening. I don't know. By the way, I, I, I had no idea that this was going to be so popular. People, I, you can't really hear it, but people have been cheering and applauding uh, as as this is airing. Just out on the streets there, people are, are I clapping. heard that. Yeah, yeah. People kept yeah. saying, go healthcare workers, but I think that's just them mispronouncing Harrison Greenbaum. I think so. I think so. I think you're right about that assumption. And actually, Rob Pierce gets right into it. He said, hello from a fellow Long Beach mystic from back uh, in the early 70s. I still remember your silts from paradise. Yes. I don't. <laughs> um, but for yeah. those who aren't familiar with your bio, you started out as a magician. You were 10 years old. You were yeah. in Long Beach, California on the sunny, mm -hmm. obviously based on your backdrop, they know that you love the sunshine. Mm -hmm. You were yeah. in sunny, golden California. I got that out of my system very early on. You got all the sunshine I needed for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> And then you pursued acting. You were in uh, San Francisco at uh, yeah. pursuing a, a degree in theater arts. Mm-hmm. And then you made the move to New York City, started auditioning. Uh, at what point do you go from auditioning for acting? I think the next move right there is Sideshow. So how does that yeah. move happen? Yeah. Uh, you audition enough and you just want to hammer a nail into your head. And <laughs> no, actually, uh, the, the way it worked out was, you know, I uh, there, there were a couple of things. I you know, got a degree actually in Southern California, a, a theater degree from Cal State Long Beach. Great useless degree. <laughs> and training, so uh, I, I went up to um, uh, to San Francisco to the American Conservatory Theater there and studied in their conservatory, as the name implies. And um, while there, there were a couple of things that were very interesting that happened. Uh, one, not the least of which, is there was a little show that was running there called the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society, and it featured uh, Weir Christopher and a couple other guys. Uh, one of which named Penn Gillette and the other one named Teller. 
And really? yeah, teller. <laughs> and so um, the the way it worked out is I really, really love that show. It was great because it was variety arts, but it was it it was it was bigger than that because there were a number of things. There were the Pickle Family Circus, and there were a number of street performers uh, at that time. There was a guy. Uh, on the streets, performing named Harry Anderson, and you know a few other folks like that. And actually, Harry was kind of moved on from the streets from that time. But anyway, um, so the, it inspired me. I kind of filed that away, and then a number of years later, in '85, I saw I sort of followed the progress and saw that they had opened uh, a show that there were just two of them now. And they were doing a show off Broadway, and I went to the uh, one of the previews of Penn, Penn and Teller, right around the corner from here, and uh, was just taken by the fact of someone doing something that had that was bigger than what they were doing. It had content. It had uh, it was uniquely their own, and that sort of inspired me. But before that, I had moved to San, I moved from San Francisco to New York in 1981, and was auditioning for shows, theater shows uh, that you know were bad community theater level uh, quality <laughs> with pretensions of high art. And um, it just, it was, I just didn't like the shows. I didn't like the people that were doing them. There was one theater company that if you joined, you had to work uh, cleaning houses for the company that the company, the guy who ran the company, uh, that was part of it. That was you, you sort of your, you know, your dues for being part of the theater company. You had to clean people's houses that he was, you know, he it was indentured servitude. Is that's what I was about to say, yeah. It, it, unless yeah. the play is about indentured servitude or slavery, yeah. uh, that's not the, the true method to acting. No, no. But it does teach you a lot about the world. Uh, <laughs> teach you a lot about the business, for sure. <laughs> yeah, the real world. So um, so the way it worked out is that about the same time, uh, comedy clubs were opening up. And there was, there was a great place down in Greenwich Village called uh, Mostly Magic. And they had a Tuesday night open mic uh, and I was about the only person that was actually doing magic there. And I kind of brought out the company magic that I'd done more uh, and would knock the rust off of it at this Tuesday night thing and then met Imam, who, who uh, was the owner of the place. And then MTV, I don't, I don't remember the show, but I got a call from someone at MTV saying, hey, we'd like you, know, we'd like you to uh, do something kind of strange. And so I worked up sticking my hand into an animal trap uh, and I did it on the show. And then I put that in the comedy magic act and I would be doing this stuff. Silks of Paradise. I don't remember exactly what that was, but uh, <laughs> whatever routine I was doing. Uh, and then I'd say, hey, that was a trick. But this- you can't, like, are you just going, I'm going to stick my hand in a bear, a bear trap? Because that's not the, the typical well, idea people come up with when they say do something strange. Well, I, I had learned, the great thing about it is it, I learned years before from old sideshow guys, all the sideshow things. Um, oh, and I wish I had the book. I don't, there, there was a, but there was a fire eating book out of Australia that was how to eat fire, which I had already learned from an, uh, another performer and, uh, hey, from Australia. <laughs> and it, it had these, uh, pictures of a guy doing a fire bowl act and a fire eating act. And he was a bodybuilder in this little G, <laughs> this little angle G string and he was all oiled up and he was eating fire. And I went, is, is that what you have to do? I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So I never did sideshow stuff, even though I had learned it all. And then I like that the instructions for fire eating are in the most flammable object imaginable. Yeah. There, there is an irony there. There is an irony there. And, and yeah, try eating, try learning how to eat fire from a book. That's what I, um, 
Although you also taught somebody how to do that sword swallowing over the phone. So the, yeah, you're no stranger. Yeah, I, at least there's there's some give and take there. But when you get a book that says, take asbestos cloth, wrap it around a piece of metal, and then wrap wire around that for your wick. No, no, no. <laughs> right. The fire is the least of your issues when there's asbestos on the torch. You don't. And, and wrap it with wire. <laughs> Light it. And the first thing is that thing gets so damn hot that as soon as you put it in your mouth, you burn yourself and you never want to eat fire, which is probably the reason the person wrote the book. They didn't want more. Just take the money and get that. But anyway, I, I digress. So I had learned this stuff and I had actually I don't, had an, an animal trap and um, did this. And then I put it in the act. And the act was, you know, I would say, oh, do a card trick, whatever. And I said, well, that was a trick, but this isn't. And I set the thing up and put it in and it get like a weird kind of funny reaction. And then I go on with the rest of the act. And then Afterwards, people come and say, that had to be a trick, right? You couldn't. <laughs> and I would explain exactly what would go into it, no pun intended, um, that, you know, the principle behind it. And people were more amazed. There was a different level of amazement than yeah. just doing it. Because when you do a trick, it's it's fine. But there's that wall of I can't tell you how it's done. This I can tell you how it's done. And <laughs> in many ways, it becomes more interesting and more amazing when you when you learn how to do these things. Uh, the method is just as compelling as the effect of actually seeing it. So, so I went, huh, there's something to this kind of stuff. So I went back and started going through all the, the sideshow stuff and uh, little by little started putting it in and taking bits out. And before I knew it, I had an hour of sideshow material uh, that I was doing uh, as a middle act in comedy clubs because they needed, there was more clubs than there were good acts and they often used a variety performer back in the eighties um, as a, a, a middle act. And most um, the comedians sort of have a, uh, a grudge against magicians. I know, oh, but did oh, they have the same oh. kind of grudge against what you were doing. Cause what you were doing obviously required a lot of effort. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah, they, they didn't, the, the fact is they, any comedian would work on their material. And if they were good, really try to create, uh, something that was distinctly their own, and then a magician walk out and say, you know, hold out your hand. No, your clean hand. Oh, that was your clean hand. And they'd hear the same hack lines over and over again. So they realized you could go and buy a comedy magic act and work. And so there was that. But this this was different. My, my favorite thing was I worked at a comedy club one time and uh, did the middle. And the, while the headliner was on, I went to the bar and I'm sitting down there. And there was a bartender who was like a dude, a real surfing dude, dude. Uh, <laughs> He said, that was awesome. That was great. Yeah, I, was, I was laughing and that was like, so wow, with a nail going in the nose. And he said, listen, you can party with us anytime, but you got to buy your own blow because we're not supplying that nose. <laughs> so um, so, um, so I did a lot of stuff and I started doing the, the colleges and that was great because I was a little more focused. Uh, it, it, you had to make, make it entertaining but at the same time, you could also get into a little content. And I would throw in some history of it. Uh, I'm dressed in a suit and tie and, you know, take off my shoes. Uh, I'm walking over broken bottles. And I'm, I'm blowing up a hot water bottle uh, like a balloon until it bursts. And nailing the nose and eating glass and doing all this stuff. And then kind of telling them things and then putting content into it about what these things are. Doing, you know, talking about belief and walking over broken bottles in my bare feet. Uh, and could go a little deeper. And then at the end, I had a little spiel that kind of tied the whole thing together. 
And uh, that got me booked back because it wasn't just about grossing people out. So I started, you know, did that for a number of years, a lot of years um, in the 80s and in the 90s. And then what was significant was in 1992, uh, they needed performers out in Coney Island at the sideshow. Uh, Dick Ziggin, who who's the founder of Coney Island USA, he uh, put out an ad in the Village Voice, uh, a weekly free newspaper here in New York. And uh, yeah, there we go. There's the mermaid parade. Um, I don't know who's that is. Who's who the king queen? Oh, you know that's Adam Savage, I think. Oh, the Mythbusters. I think that's uh, Adam Savage is King Neptune. Anyway, um, so uh, the the end result was that I uh, uh, called him up and I did what's known as a ballet. I knew I knew enough of this stuff uh, that I did what which the ballet is the sales pitch that's done by the barker. Real terms outside talker. And I basically yeah. sold myself in sideshow terms. <laughs> and he, oh, come on out. And I went out there in the middle of February and there was no one out there. He had kept the, the bar open and the museum. That time, the, the board, we were up on the boardwalk at 12th Street. And, um, and I went in there with my whole act. And there were two German tourists that had heard about Coney Island, where obviously we're in the city uh, visiting. And they, um, Came out to Coney Island and everything was closed except for Nathan's <laughs> and the show, but it was just, it was just the Coney Island Museum and the bar. So they were sitting there and they had uh, two mugs of hot chocolate, which they paid, you know, 50 cents each. And, <laughs> and this is like the, the Warriors, New York, right? This is, yeah. Yeah. This is oh, very oh, yeah. pretty, dangerous Coney Island. Oh, yeah, it was glorious. It was beautiful. <laughs> um, it had character. It was great. And, <laughs> It, it, in those days, uh, Stotch's, um, it was closed down, but Stotch's uh, uh, bathhouse was still there at uh, Stillwell and the, the boardwalk. And it was, they had painted, you know, Warriors, uh, the graffiti on it, the, the production company, and left it. They were supposed to take it down and oh, clean it off. Awesome. It really was the Warriors zone right there. Uh, anyway, so I, I did an hour uh, for these two German tourists who spoke no English whatsoever. And I'm doing all this stuff, and they're looking at me like, was is los? And, <laughs> uh, and at the end of it, Dick came up and shook my head and said, a kindred spirit, we start on Easter weekend. Uh, <laughs> I said, sure. So that was it. Now, he tells the story differently. He said, those German tourists were amazed, and they got the greatest show for a dollar. And I, like, they didn't know what the Fagawi was. <laughs> they had no idea who this guy I was and why he was inflicting mayhem upon himself. Uh, and I, I think when I finished, they got out of there very quickly uh, thereafter. They had seen enough. But anyway, I started out there and it was uh, talking the front, doing the ballets and then running in and eating glass and then going back out and talking in the front and then coming back. And and it was great. And then worked. Um, I did a couple of like like two full seasons out there and then would be the sort of the, the uh, designated hitter. If anyone needed some time, I would go in. And uh, and you know fill in the hole in the show because it was a ten in one. There were ten acts right. in every show. So um, I, since I did all the stuff, I could do various things. I could swallow swords or eat the fire if they didn't want the fire eating. I was sword swallowing and whatever. And then um, and in the hierarchy that that there's there are the the natural borns and then that yeah. that even though it requires an incredible amount of practice and and bravery is sort of lower up on the totem pole of sideshow performers. What you were doing? Uh, yeah, we were known as working acts, and the fact is you. For the most part, you can learn how to do it. You're not natural born. 
Uh, you're not a self-made freak. You don't have tattoos all over your body or, or um, you know, women that have grown their grown a beard or something like that. Um, but the working hacks are basically, and you know, anyone can learn this. And in 2001, um, when Melvin Burkhardt, who was the last of the old sideshow performers of his generation, uh, when he died, I went to Dick Zig and I said, we're losing, we've lost a generation. And all of these things can only be taught on a mentor uh, apprentice level. You have to really learn from someone teaching you as opposed to out of a book or even off of <laughs> like that. Um, and we need to start up a sideshow school. And he said, can it be done as a school? I said, I don't know, but I'm willing to do it. So I started up the sideshow school out there, out there, and it's it's still going on. I'm not uh, not running it anymore. A guy named Adam Rin is doing, it, and he's doing a very good job with it. And it's the only place where you can go out there and learn how to walk over broken bottles and heat fire and swallow swords and and learn all the things properly and as safe as they possibly can be. I mean, I I, I can testify to that because we shot uh, for my travel yeah. series the first episode of recalculating. You taught me some of those things, and one of my mm -hmm. favorite moments is. Uh, you're teaching me how to eat fire, which is always always terrifies me. Uh, uh, the first time I ever did it, I burned my lip, and then I had to explain to people that it was from fire eating. I was like, I was just going like this. Did not believe me. Uh, <laughs> but we're watching the footage afterwards, and what I hadn't noticed at the time was as I was going back, my shirt had caught a little bit of fire, and then you very calmly just patted me down <laughs> without without freaking me out, and it was what the most just professional perfect maneuvers and just seeing that after the fact of, cause you knew, you knew it would freak me out if I, if you had said, by the way, you're on fire and you yeah. just very calmly, I want to make sure you're not on fire, finish what you're doing. It was one of my favorite moments in, in the edit room. Yeah. The, the, the funny thing is once you work Coney Island, nothing phases you. I mean, <laughs> it was, uh, I get, I don't know. I was, I had to be about uh, 98, 99 or something like that. I, I, they just needed some, someone to fill in on Easter. And, uh, it was very fourth of July, fourth of July. And, uh, I was out there and we were on where, where Coney Island USA is now at 12th and, and surf. And I'm standing there, uh, talking and saying, it's wild, wonderful, and one of a kind. You got to see it to believe it. And even then you might not be too sure about the strange and unusual sights you'll see. And I look down towards the boardwalk and I see people, running in panic and i mean a hundred two hundred people because it was just packed out there people basically a riot heading towards us and then i look around look to the surf avenue and i see mounted police coming from the other way and i've got standing next to me this young girl i don't remember who it was who's standing there with the with a snake around her neck and i say we're going inside because we're not going to make money with this crowd let's let's go inside yeah so pulled down this, the, the security gates and just watched a riot happen. And it happened three times a day. They, they were, the, the bloods and the crypts showed up down the block. Oh and people started freaking out and running away, rightfully so. So we just kind of go in and roll the thing down. And, I, you know, there's baseball bats hidden. And I was like, just kind of sit there, just waiting for it to all calm down or whatever came our way. And then once it did, rolled it back up and went out there and said, okay, folks, that's all part of the show. Come on, gather around here. You think you're having fun now? Wait until you see. That's nothing compared to the big show that's on the inside here. <laughs> I had The weird thing is the first time I ever performed in Coney Island, I borrowed my, it was my grandmother's Volvo. My parents let me drive into Coney Island. It was a stand-up show across the street from Nathan's, open yep. air behind you. So there was 
somebody could touch you while you're performing because your back is to just the street. And there's like a weird popping sound while I was performing and then some sirens and I kind of just ignored it, got through my set and then found out later that there was a murder. <laughs> that somebody had been murdered half a block down from the show that I had no That's wall behind me to protect me from. And I was like, this, I love this place. <laughs> Who books that gig? Hey, yeah, exactly. we did it. There you go. By the way, your, your connection to uh, circus as well. Like there's, there's the sideshow thing, but I have mm -hmm. this wonderful picture. Um, Ah, uh, yes. Clowning. Uh, how old are you in this picture? Oh, and is I'm this about before a, magic. I'm about 11 years old, and I I love the circus. We went every year uh, when it came to Southern California and saw you know, Ringling Brothers, also saw Circus Vargas, uh, and loved it and fell in love with clowning. I, uh, one of the Long Beach mystics, Scott Bryan, who fortunately I'm still in touch with thanks to Facebook, uh, went off and was in the first uh year of clown college there really uh, it's a whole nother story there really was no clown college at that that time it's like 1968 and he went off uh he was just a couple years older than and uh well he, i mean i guess it was like 17 so he was about seven or eight years older than i am and he went off and um toured with ringling until his his draft number came up and um he came back off on the road and the long beach mystics group I was part of, uh, we did a show every year called It's Amazing. And the second half of the show was called Circus World or Circus Time or something like that. And it was a celebration of Scott being back. And he did all the acts that he did. And then we did bits in between. Uh, and they were old clown bits that that uh, he had learned from the old timers of Ringling Brothers. And he came back and taught it. And I loved it, just loved it. And so I wanted to do some clowning. So I learned a little bit about makeup and put a little costume together and did uh, a comedy magic, um, a clown magic at birthday parties. I was doing, you know, birthday parties, 11 years old, and, you know, had some nice little uh, walk-around money in my pocket. Rob Pierce said later on, he, uh, he he did a magic act with the clown outfit. Yeah. At the end, his pants would disappear. Can you confirm or deny this story? It's it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. I did, I did a... I assume uh, not at a kid show, by the way. <laughs> that's a bad thing? Yeah. <laughs> uh... Yeah, it was it was a a a spoof magic act uh, in which everything went you know went wrong, and then the big vanish uh, was that my pants disappeared. Thank you, you know it's a classic. Instead of a, a pants drop, it was because <laughs> it was a magic clown act. Ta da! And that's <laughs> entertainment. So yeah, then, uh, I did that actually at Abbott's uh, at Magic uh, uh, Abbott's get together back in like. 78, 77, 78, something like that. Cola, Michigan, the magic capital of the world. Yes. It's called colon because it's, you know, at the end of a sentence, that's where you come to rest. <laughs> that's what I was told. That's what Carol Fox told me. Like, okay, what the hell? I'm getting a ton of people on Instagram. Uh, Ossie Wynn says he misses you. Uh, uh, Brad says he remembers being taught sword swallowing over the phone. And yeah. Lynn Wee uh, says, love this. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And then this coming from a woman who stands in front of a guy <laughs> throwing knives. So uh, I appreciate that. And what, once you started doing all of, you were at Mostly Magic, uh, you were performing uh, all of your stuff. You started doing all these incredible off-Broadway shows. I remember seeing Carnival Knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and then that led to well, Play Dead. Yeah, it gets, it gets back to, um, you know, I loved performing and there were enough venues and things out there to perform in. And I it loved... I started working um, with the, the Big Apple Circus back in about 1988, entertaining kids in the hospital. And 
also doing all the the corporate stuff. Oh, that's that's from a, a gig we did a number of years ago, and um, from a corporate doing corporate gigs uh, for the Big Apple because the Big Apple would be out on the road, and um, uh, the 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 way it worked out was. Um, uh, uh, I would ringmaster the the corporate events because Paul Binder, who was the founder of the circus, would be out. He ringmaster, he'd be out. And then uh, in 1995, they were doing a show called Jazzmatazz, and uh, they oh I, we lost you for a second there. Um, I was doing a show called they were calling doing a show called Jazzmatazz, and the lead performer in it, the the sort of the host of the show, couldn't do Yom Kippur. Uh, and Jew, don't you know? And uh, so you they had the facts of the circus. I was, <laughs> I yeah, I yeah, I was uh, I was the Shabbos goy uh, for uh, for him. And, By the way, uh, I hate Sandy Koufax. I, even though I am a Jew, I hate him because anytime I worked on Yom Kippur, my grandmother would use him. But Sandy Koufax didn't play a game in the World Series. You don't need to work at that comedy club. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um. So the so the end result was that um, we uh, I filled in for the one performance and uh, yeah I know and uh, <laughs> I uh, the after that performance Paul Binder said hey we've always wanted to do a medicine show uh, would you like to do it and I said sure sure and so I toured with them for the next year uh, doing this show called the medicine show. You know, they, they formed a committee, uh, with marketing people and said, what should we call our medicine show? And they came up with the idea of calling it the medicine show. Uh, not for profits are just, the uh, anyway, the, the end result is that we, uh, toured around with that and it was great. And, and then I, but I really wanted to do, and he asked me if I would stay on and, and host a couple other seasons with, it. and I really, want to do my own show again 1985 Penn and Teller are are off Broadway they're doing a show and I it just spoke to me very very much and I wanted to do something so I started playing around with the idea of the sideshow because I had such a love of it and not only just doing the stuff and the reaction of it but also the whole culture of it the whole carnival culture uh and I decided to do the show and I wrote it up and was trying to get someone to produce it and so i turned down working with the big apple circus uh, the next season so i could look like there was a producer that fell out i went back the year after that uh and did the big apple circus again and then got serious and we did the show in like 2004 um off broadway and it was called carnival knowledge and it was fun it was it was very possibly the, the most enjoyable year of uh of my life uh my wife krista uh was running the theater they had a lovely lounge downstairs. Was she your wife at this point, or was she still just the stage manager? Yeah, she she uh, she had moved on from stage managing. She was the theater managing at that time. Gotcha. Uh, running the place, and it was it was glorious. It was a lot of fun. If people want to see little glimpses of it, there is a documentary that was done called um, uh, American Carney, uh, and it's on it's on Amazon Prime and other places like Amazon Prime that are not Amazon Prime, but. It, um, and it's it's fun because it kind of grabs a, a nice little chunk of the of the world of the carnival, and I'm sort of at the center of it. And you see a lot of the the kind of stuff I was doing back then, uh, and it was fun. It was just an enjoyable uh, experience, and we ba basically lived at the theater there, uh, spent so much time, and it was just a, a, a joyous, joyous time. And then 
we toured around with that a little bit and got the Gorilla Girl up and running. That was I remember being blown away because that that illusion is incredible. And yeah. that was my first opportunity to see it in real life. Yeah, I mean it was a little different variation than than normally done with a, a Gorilla Girl. Uh, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, it's an illusion that's based upon Pepper's Ghost that has been done in uh, carnivals for many, many years. Apparently, this version of it came out of the South or Central America, uh, the idea of, of doing this. And, and what is done is the, a young lady, uh, scantily clad in, in animal skins, uh, covering her, you know, essential parts, uh, stands in, uh, on stage in a cage and put into a hypnotic trance and it transforms right before your eyes. It looks like, you know, a, a cinematic effect transforms into a gorilla. And the, but the gorilla is, you know, hypnotized. There's no need to fear. And then the shakes off the, the trance, the gorilla, and then comes forward, breaks down the door and goes after the audience. And people scream and go running out of the tent. And just then the outside talker is saying, hey, folks, if you're wondering what all the screaming is, <laughs> The young lady right here, and she's standing out front there. Uh, they just saw an amazing spectacle. This young lady and goes in the spiel because people running out attract a lot of attention, and you just keep doing it as a grind. So we wanted, I always, always wanted to do uh, the Gorilla Girl, Girl the Gorilla, it's also known as, um, and I had a little variation on a little twist on the end. Uh, there was an homage to you know people like Blackstone, a little switcheroo. And... Um, I'll just basically explain that I'm standing on stage at a microphone talking to the audience saying, you know, to the girl in the cage, think gorilla, think gorilla, think back, not 10 years, a thousand years, but a million years, think back to an earlier primordial form, think gorilla, 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 think gorilla, change, change into a gorilla, and she changes. The gorilla shakes off the thing and starts breaking down the door, and I say, run for your lives. I jump off the stage and run up the island, up <laughs> The gorilla breaks free, comes down the edge of the stage, starts laughing. The lights come up full because there's been strobe lights and, and sirens and red lights, you know, emergency lights and stuff like that. And um, then uh, I would, would the, the, the guy on the gorilla laugh and point and take off the mask, and it was me. So that was a little switch. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a little Lance Burden in the end. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's a you know it's a time honored uh, a little bit there, and um, but I love that, that it also that, allowed me. To, oh, sorry, I'll keep going. Sorry about that. Well, no, I was just saying it allowed me to be on stage instead of, you know, just the we we couldn't chase people up out of their seats and out of the theater, and I wanted to then finish the show afterwards. So it was about taking the the costume off, and it allowed me to kind of stay there and be part of that. So no, it's brilliant, and I think it shares a little bit of DNA with Play Dead, and that that's a scary moment. Um, somebody that yeah. we both know from Coney Island uh, put the question a different way. He said, what motivated Todd's transition from clown boy to spooky goth lord? Listen, some of the darkest people I've ever met are, are circus clowns. <laughs> you take them out of the makeup and run. You run away, believe me. <laughs> I can tell you stories. I can tell you stories, believe me. So the you're not surprised it's that uh, John Wayne Gacy was a clown. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, you know, in many ways, Gacy without the makeup was was not nearly as scary and terrifying and awful. <laughs> but how does that uh, how we, does Play Dead come out of Carnival? Knowledge is an incredible show. It's it's a fun show. It's not it's not spooky. But then the transition there was a to Play Dead is, is very scary. There was a problem. Uh, two things. First off, it was really hard to market 
um, carnival knowledge. It was really, really difficult. And, and the reason was that, um, let me just move this here, can I see a little flow here? Uh, the reason is because when people hear a thumbnail, uh, it's a guy eating glass and hammering a nail in their nose, they don't want to come. But what we did, what many shows do, is uh, a lot of the marketing budget, uh, would, a lot of the marketing was done on barter. Uh, you have the, the Lindenhurst weekly journal, some little weekly paper. Or, uh, That's the New York Times of Lindenhurst, I hear. Yes, please, please. <laughs> and the marketing person would know that if we wanted to take out an ad, it would be $2,000. However, what they would do is they would knock it down to 1000 and they'd take $500 in cash and $500 in tickets. And what this meant was that the paper would then have these tickets that they would then give out to the people that paid, the, 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 you know, they would give them out as gifts to their, their advertisers. So the, the, the manager of the Piggly Wiggly down the way that always took out an ad and thing would get four tickets to the show, off-Broadway show, as a thank you. And they would come and they had no idea what the hell the show was. Uh, the good news is, Time and time again, I heard uh, a comment, which is, if I'd know what the show was, I'd never have seen it, but I'm glad I did, and I'm coming back. <laughs> Weird left-handed compliment, uh, but I'll take it. It was great. So the we it was hard to sell the show. Regional theaters were very leery of it. Um, so we only did a, a couple of dates on it. It wasn't the kind of thing we could go in and do one-nighters with. And we could, but it would be really difficult. And we also wanted to set up the whole thing and have a midway beforehand and play the games and, and all this. Uh, so people were in a good mood by the time they came in. So we, we did a, a run in Milwaukee and we did a run up in Connecticut. And then it was, there really wasn't much else going on. When I was thinking about what kind of show I was going to do, there were two things I, I was thinking of. One of which was doing a sideshow show or a show about seances. Because any magician who has been in the game for any period of time has stumbled across the world of spiritualism and seances and all the wonderful fraud found there. And everyone <laughs> wants to do a seance. Every magician wants to do a seance. Uh, and so that I wanted to, I mean, my 21st birthday was the, the seance of the magic castle, the Houdini seance. Uh, and it was glorious. And, and we just found out, I just found out last week on, on this show that Carbonero had a, sort of a, a pseudo wedding in the Houdini seance room at the Magic Castle. Oh, that's great. Almost that's to the great. Magic Castle, but he did yes. have his wedding in the seance room. Yeah, a resurrecting something there. Hey, um, raising <laughs> something like from the dead. Hey, so, uh, and the, um, and we'll get to, we'll get to back to Mr. Michael Carbonaro in just a moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so when Play Dead kind of wound down, I decided to go and, and explore doing another show. And then the show ended up being a, something called Dark Deceptions. I had a nice relationship with the New York International Fringe Festival. I uh, had done uh, Carnival Knowledge there first. Uh, and then um, from that, developed it into uh, the off-Broadway run. And uh, the... Uh, they did the same thing with this this thing. And, and the, what I did was I wanted to acknowledge uh, that the, of the, the fraud element of, of um, spiritualism. 
So I did very, uh, the, the, the first part of the show was very much like um, the, the, uh, the prologue to um, uh, Henry V, uh, Shakespeare's Henry V, you know, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heavens of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. But pardon us, gentles all, the flat and raised spirits that hath dared to bring forth such uh, an object upon this unworthy scaffold. And what he's saying in the in the in the rest of the prologue is that we can't really do all this. But if you use your imagination, we'll have a wonderful time here. It, when you you know just think that you see them printing their their proud hooves in the receiving earth. So the idea was, let's acknowledge this. Let's talk about the history of spiritualism and say it's always been fake. It always will be, and tonight will be no exception. However, if you look at this through the eyes of a believer uh, and play your role. It can be a, a very compelling experience. And if, you, if you'll do that, I will play the role of William. So from here on in, this is, this is what we're going to do. And away we went with this. The problem was it then became a burlesque. Hmm. And that everything I said seriously from there, putting on a collar and being a spiritualist minister, everything I said seriously got laughs because people knew it was all fake. Uh, even though I was playing it very straight and in a different context, I, I literally could have, you know, start a religion. The Pacey's were a weird um, touch, I will tell, I will say. <laughs> well, you know, please. So the, the end result is it wasn't firing on all cylinders. I did it, um, I did it at the Fringe and then Alan Schuster, who is the producer of Stomp, got the rights to it and he, he said, you need to do something more of this. And I said, yes. And so I took it down to the uh, Two River Theater in Red Bank and did it there and expanded upon it and really did it in a real theater uh, and played around with it and played around with it. And it was it was OK. And at that time, uh, I basically done it all myself. And he Alan said, you need a, a director. And we talked to a number of directors in um uh, New York, and they were like, oh, you're doing performance. <laughs> I do theater. When I direct Shakespeare, it, it cures cancer. When I do Ibsen, there is no world hunger. And when I when I do uh, Brecht, oh, there's peace in the Middle East. That's how powerful my performance. And you want me to do a magic show? I don't think so. Now, the, this, I got, we got the snobbery all over the place from directors. The good news was uh, my producer had and continues to had and continues to produce the most successful um, the uh, uh, performance show ever, which is Stomp, running more than twenty five years now. Uh, so he it didn't bother him getting the snobbery because he'd heard it for many 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 years. So he said, "Who do you want to direct?" And I said, "Tell her." And he said, "There's two things I want to ask: uh, Can we get him? And does he talk?" And I don't. <laughs> I, I knew this question was just going to mime the direction, just like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I knew we were going to get this. This this question was coming up because we were hitting these dead ends, these brick walls with these directors over and over again. And so I called Teller and I said, um, would you be interested? And he said, sure. So I said, yes, we can get him. And when yes, he does talk and when he does, we listen. OK. So we had a nice talk and we agreed to it. And Teller came out and saw the show that I was doing in Red Bank. Uh, and we sat around and talked and talked and talked about it. And 
then he said, let's, let's get together here. And so I flew out to uh, uh, Vegas for a week. And every day we got together and started playing with it. And we ended up just taking, ripping everything apart that I had done, putting it off to the side. He brought to the table all the things that he had done, because what a lot of people don't know is that he and, and Penn had a two-person seance in which Teller spoke uh, that they had done, a table seance. Uh, and they'd done a lot of spiritualism pieces. And Teller knows that world backwards and forwards, uh, literally writing, the, if not the book, a book, uh, on it, the, the House of Mysteries that he did with Todd Carr um, about um, um, Abbott, um, David Abbott. So anyway, we sat there surrounded by artifacts from the life of Harry Houdini and a blank page. And he said, let's, let's not worry about isms. Let's use anything we want. We can use spiritualism. We can do witchcraft. We can, we can do anything. Uh, whatever, we, let's just work on images. So we started playing around with ideas. And um, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite story um, in that we were talking about who we were going to, what we we're going to do. We, we got the idea of, of telling spooky stories, but we wanted them real. We didn't want ghost stories. We didn't want these, you know, fictitious things because the difference between reality and, and fiction when it comes to the, the, the disturbing side of things is that when you, hear a ghost story, it can scare you, but at some point you go, this isn't real. But there's something more, much more terrifying when you're talking about things that happened before by real people. Because it implies that it happened before, and therefore it could happen again. And maybe <laughs> this will happen to you. So uh, that, was, that was a really compelling idea. And so we started talking about various things. And Tell us, let's do something about Marjorie, because she's really interesting in that she kind of brought sex into the seance room. And we started playing around with it. And Tell us, I have an idea. And this is the, uh, I warn our, our viewers here that uh, I'm going to use some language here. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, that might. Uh, <laughs> viewers, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. And if by you're... the way, one of the things that keeps coming up in the in the comments over and over again, Ron said, "Will we see Play Dead again?" Sean Farquhar, past president of the IBM, said, "I've only seen the film from Play Dead, but love to see it live." I do think one of the things that is so remarkable about it is it's such a roller coaster ride and so emotionally affecting that there's nothing like it. I actually saw it at the end of a, a week of Magic Camp, so I hadn't slept in seven days. And somebody said, "I have a ticket to see Play Dead," and that's perhaps the best date because I was in a semi. Uh, hallucinogenic state in that sense that I was exhausted. And uh, I don't think I've ever mm -hmm. had a more, uh, I, I've never been more scared in the theater. I've never gone through such a, a physical and emotional ringer. And man, it, uh, what you guys managed to achieve was uh, was incredible. Uh, there's Ken Dum saying, one of my well, favorite shows ever. Well, that's very sweet. Um, that, 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 I, I, I appreciate that. And well, I want, I want might, to take back one step before we get uh, a little more into yeah. it, um, just because uh, we hit on Mostly Magic earlier, um, and that was sort of, there's Mostly Magic, and then my introduction to uh, to you after Coney Island was through Monday Night Magic, um, but mm -hmm. who was the sort of person that you met at Mostly Magic that sort of got you, sort of, that connected you with the rest of uh, the guys that eventually became Monday Night Magic? Well, the way it worked out is that I met... Uh, a man so nice, they named him thrice, named Jamie Twiss. Uh, he, we worked together uh, 
we kind of met at, at most of the magic many years before. And then I got a, uh, a phone call from him. He actually lived right across the street from me uh, for a number of years. And he um, called me and he said, uh, I've, I've just had a uh, meeting with a guy and uh, I don't know. I don't know. This might be nothing, uh, but it might be something. I don't know. He, he <laughs> Uh, and we need, we could use you. Like, okay. And so that guy is Michael Chout. Uh, But by the way, that was a very good impression of Jamie and Swiss. Um, But let's, uh, just to compare, let's bring in surprise guest, Jamie and Swiss. I don't know. I got this guy. I got this guy. (laughs) I don't know if this is anything. That's a very good Jamie impression, Jamie. That is, that is, that is I, I, I've had practice. I've had practice. Hello, <laughs> you know, Todd Robbins. Jamie, Jamie Ian Swiss is one of my favorite Jamie Ian Swisses of all Jamie Ian Swisses. <laughs> there are many who pretend to the throne, but he is except the no true, substitute true heir. Yeah, no you can't go by the exactly. initials because he'd be jizz. You have to. Keep, it's got to be all three names in a row. Correct. Please. And I would always introduce him as a man, man so nice they named him thrice, and he always hated that. So, so I, I will never give that up. Worked out perfectly. But Jamie, do yes. you have a similar recollection of meeting Todd, and 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 what what about uh, him uh, attracted you to him? Um, <laughs> you sounded really weird. <laughs> can we? Can you? I'm gonna let I'm you. Re- I'm gonna let you ask that. I'm gonna let you rephrase that. Can you rephrase the question? To- He's a beautiful man, Jamie. He's a beautiful man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as Todd just mentioned, we had met at Mostly Magic. When I moved back from Mostly to what to New York City in '92, after having been in D.C. for some years <clears throat> as a Magic bartender for Bob Sheets at the Inn of Magic, uh, <clears throat> I immediately started working at Mostly Magic. I worked every Wednesday night behind the bar, and then would close the Wednesday night close-up show. But then, I about every two months, two and a half months, or whatever the schedule was, I'd headline. And the first time for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and and the first time I headlined, there was this opening act I'd never heard of, I'd never met. It was this guy named Todd Robbins who came out, and amongst other things, he broke a concrete block over his head. And I said, "This is fucking great. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta meet this guy." And we sat down to talk afterwards. I said, "What's your story? Where do you, you know?" And we talked, and I said, "Where do you live?" And he goes, "Forty fifth and ninth. And I said, "No, I, I live at forty fifth and 9th. <laughs> and, and I Todd, said, no, you don't. I, and Todd, I, don't. I think Todd still lives at 45th and 9th. There's, there's something, <laughs> yes. And there's something about Todd's sort of, you know, nature and tonality that he's always up to something, even when he's not. <laughs> and just him looking me in the eye. He's over here. And, and per- exactly. And just looking me in the eye and saying, no, I live at 45th and 9th. By the time the conversation was over, I was completely pissed off. And I was sure I was being gaslighted. And then mm-hmm. about two weeks later, I was in the you know requisite neighborhood uh, Korean deli at like midnight. And there's Todd. I said, what are you doing here? And he goes, I told you, I live across the street. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was from that time that we really, we very quickly became very good friends and we would pick each other's, uh, pick up each other's mail when one or the other of us was on the road. And we went out drinking together mm-hmm. all the time, uh, hung out at the, the, which the was, at, go ahead, Tom. Which was because occasionally uh, someone would come into town, a magician, and we would go out, a friend of Jamie's, and we'd go out, and they, for the most part, didn't know me. 
and be sitting around and they're doing, oh, and this is, here's a move and there's a thing. And I, here's a chicken. <laughs> I'm just sitting there. And then it was a trap that Jamie would set. <laughs> so I'd be sitting there and they'd say, well, what do you, you do? And I'd say, pick a light bulb. And they'd point to one of the light bulbs hanging over one of the tables. And I'd walk over there and I'd go up to the people sitting there and say, excuse me, I just need the light bulb. And unscrew it, come back and bite into it and chow down on it. And, the, and that was... No more car tricks after that. And this is this is why I this led to me writing an article about Todd Robbins for G Magazine, uh, and the name of the article was the title of the article was "I Hate Todd Robbins." <laughs> but it's just because, a list of because I learned it wasn't just visiting magicians; it's just sitting around the bar and doing stuff socially. And I learned that you know whatever I was going to do, I had to go first because. <laughs> Then he was going to whip this nail out of his pocket and ram it up his nose. And then he was going to take a martini glass or uh, the light bulb from the lamp. You know, we were once at a bar where he picked up the martini glass and he chopped the entire glass until just the perfect stem was left. And then he set the stem back down on the bar to the bartender. You know, this is for you. So yeah. anyway, yeah, we, had lot, we had a lot of fun in those days. Wow, look, the card keeps coming to the top. Right, exactly. But I will also say, I will also say, uh, while we're at this, that um, one of the great things about my friendship with Todd is that he introduced me to some of the real folks in the sideshow world, and I got to know uh, Bobby um, Bobby Reynolds, Bobby Reynolds, of course, and especially of all Ward. those folks that I met, especially Ward Hall, and I was yeah. really fortunate. <laughs> How about that, Todd? Yeah. Uh, I was so that's war on the with the sunglasses. That's Ward Hall, the last of the great true American carnies. Mm -hmm. And that's AJ there, who was raised who was raised on the Midway, grew up on the Midway. Um, and Ward Hall, and in the other photo is his partner, Chris Christ, who's still alive. Uh, Ward just passed away a couple. That's Chris Christ on the right, who was uh, Ward's uh, both personal and professional partner for many many years, and also Chris is a uh, enthusiastic amateur magician. But Ward mm -hmm. Hall is one of the most extraordinary people you could ever meet. And the finest, maybe the finest storyteller I've ever heard. Yeah. If I dare say that in the presence of a great, one of the best storytellers I know. Uh, but there was nobody like Ward Hall. And I got to know him pretty well. I got through Todd. I had the chance to, I yeah. could go to the, I could go to the sideshow eventually without Todd and sit in Ward's trailer all day and listen to stories. And it would, every time it was the best day of my life. So uh, yeah, really, really something special. And also, I think Melvin Burkhart did his final blockhead at the rehearsal dinner for your wedding. No, it was at it was no, actually, not the rehearsal dinner at the actual oh, wedding. The actual wedding. show, yeah, which I was, yeah. I was the wedding was, I was best man. I was best. Yeah, man. yeah, the wedding was done on a Monday afternoon. There we are. Yeah, uh, and uh, at the Solomon Street Playhouse where we were doing Monday Night Magic, where uh, Monday Night Magic got started, and. Um, we decided that we just didn't want to do a ceremony. We did a show. So we had, it started off, it was November 8th, no, excuse me, October 8th, um, 2001. And it was less than a month after 9-11. And I had blocks north of, of Ground Zero, uh, of the World Trade Center, um, with what the remains of the World Trade Center. And it was still smoldering. It was still smoking. It was uh, devastating. And the sh 
the ceremony opened off with the last cast of the Fantastics singing Try to Remember. <laughs> they sang Try to Remember the kind of September. September. Life was uh, sweet and oh so mellow. It had a whole different meaning after 9-11. Yeah. And that's, it started. And then I emceed the show, the first half of the show. And we had magic, we had puppets, we had burlesque, a wonderful performer, uh, goes by the name of Dirty Martini. Dirty Martini. Uh, and uh, Chris McDaniel roping and whipping. And uh, and then the, the end of the first half was Melvin Burkhart, the last of the old sideshow guys, the guy who created the act, not the actual skill, but the actual act of what's known as the human blockhead, of hammering a nail into your nose for fun and profit. He developed that in 1929, and he did the act, and I knew something was up. I'd known Melvin for many, many years, and I don't, um, I don't make a big deal of this, but I met him uh, in the early 90s. Actually, I met him before. I met him in Coney Island, but I got to know him after he stopped working in Coney Island, and I... I had been doing the blockhead for quite a while and I was down in Florida and I visited him and I said, Melvin, I, you know, I do the blockhead. And he said, yeah, I saw you doing it on TV. Sure. Yeah. You do it very well. I like it. He said, well, I, I feel very bad about this actually, because, you know, I learned how to do this before I realized that you were the guy that created the act. And so therefore, if you were to say to me, you shouldn't be doing this, this is my act. I would stop doing it immediately. And he said, oh, no, 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 I like the way you're doing it. I think it's great. And he said, if you ever need any of my lines, you want to use any of my act, my routine, go ahead. And it was such, such a large gesture, yeah, a beautiful, selfless gesture, that from there on in, I sent him a royalty check <laughs> when I was doing this. Because uh, he was retired. He was you know, in his 80s at that time and living in a trailer in Riverview, Florida, just outside of Gibtown, Gibsonton. And... So I'd sent him off these these checks every once in a while, and he I would always get a phone call when he would get them, and he'd thank me. We'd have a lovely talk, um, and uh, he was just a, a, a generous, wonderful man. So when we were getting married, I reached out to him and I said, "I'd like to hire you to come and perform." And he said, "Oh, you yeah, don't have to hire me." Before you finish that, there is another yeah. guest at that wedding who I'd like to bring in. Um, oh dear! Either confirm or deny all of these stories. Uh, it is uh, a good friend of all of us, somebody we all love, Peter Samuelson, everybody. Hey. Hey. It's a party. Exactly. I was there at that day. You know, it's funny. He's the most tech savvy of all. That was a fabulous story. And, and by the way, what Jamie didn't tell you is that the connection between Michael Chout and Todd Robbins went through Jamie, but Jamie came there because of me. Correct. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say, Peter Samuelson, fuck you. Yeah, that, that was, those were the first F-bombs of this program that is airing to children, but uh, pro probably placed that. They've got to learn sometime. They've got to learn sometime. Yeah. And might as well be from... I, I didn't want to cut you off from the Melbourne Park story. I just wanted to bring Peter in. Because um, I uh, if you wanted, I wanted you to get to the end of that, because that, that was a beautiful moment. So... So Melvin came up and we, we spent, uh, you know, a couple of days together and um, it was, it was, it was charming. It was, there was something a little off and I didn't know, uh, 
found out right before our wedding that he had been very sick and he almost didn't make it. He came up with uh, his daughter, Bonnie, because uh, Joyce's wife, uh, her health wasn't that great. She didn't, didn't travel very much. So the end result is um, she, um, uh, Bonnie came up and said, you know, dad is not, he's not been doing very well. Uh, and I go, oh, he was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, he wasn't. And he did the show and he was a little foggy, kind of flubbed a couple of lines of a routine he'd been doing for 70 friggin' years. Uh, and you know, oh, this is kind of interesting. And like, so we had a glorious time. And then a month later to the day, November 8th, uh, he died. And it, his last performance was at our wedding. And a few weeks after that, I got a package from Joyce and from Bonnie with uh, Melvin's props in it, uh, including, where the hell is it? Uh, including, yeah, well, that's, that's the hat and uh, that's the hammer. I've got the nail around here somewhere. I can't do Melvin's nail because it's too damn, too damn large, but uh and yeah, and that's, 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 that's Todd's son, Finn, who has taken on the family yeah. tradition uh, of the human yeah. head. Uh, so the... In the words of Alan Kennedy, the inventor of the center deal, to die Vernon after uh, Vernon's kid did an ace trick for the professional cheat, Alan Kennedy said, Vernon, you're bringing that kid up right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so the end result was that uh, I got this package from from uh, uh, from from uh, Melvin's widow with his props, and then a couple weeks later, I got Melvin. Uh, Melvin didn't want uh, a funeral. He didn't want memorial service. He didn't care. He said, "When I'm dead, I'm dead. That's all, that's the end of it." So I got his remains, and we ended up going out. On February, uh, February, uh, Coney Island. Yeah, February. I have to look this up exactly. I think February seventeenth. Uh, wrong. I know I've got that wrong. Um, on what would have been his ninety-fifth birthday, and we spread the remains uh, out in the ocean at Coney Island because that was the last sideshow he had really worked a full season was Coney Island. So he is perpetually. Uh, engaged up there uh and it was just the ultimate uh, you know honor to uh to take care of that and it's you know it's a lovely legacy that uh i i don't you know i'm not i'm not the heir to the 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 blockhead uh dynasty it's just that i was just so honored to know him and uh he was just such a great man no, no two ways about it and, that's and it was feel weird but i think there's a lot of people who feel the same way about you in terms of you have taught uh, the next generation after you, and and they look at you the way I think uh, you look at, at Melvin. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the way it worked out was that uh, Melvin was so generous, and he was such an inspiration, and he was uh, uh, a giver. Uh, uh, and that's why I, you know, I wanted to start up the Sideshow School to keep this going in his name. The, the school is sort of dedicated to his memory out in, uh, uh, out in Coney Island. And the... Uh, uh, the thing that I always find kind of amusing is that another performer who I uh, met about the same time I met uh, Melvin was uh, Bobby Baxter, the great Bobby Baxter, one of the funniest magic acts ever. And you're getting nods from these guys because we knew him very well. And 
Uh, Baxter was just full of uh, pith and vinegar. Uh, he was he was a very funny man and could be so cantankerous and uh, but just so very very funny. Uh, we worked together uh, at mostly magic, and one time I introduced him, and I said, you know, we called him Professor Bobby Baxter because for all of us that are performers, watching him is truly an education, education and great magic and wonderful comedy, comedy timing. There's no one else quite like him. You're gonna have a wonderful time. Here is Professor J Bobby Baxter, and he walks out on stage, and he gives this kind of dirty look, and he goes into his routine. He walks off stage, and he said, "What the hell was that introduction?" <laughs> Another word which Jamie used earlier, which I will not not use again. <laughs> hey, um, he he said, "What was that all about?" I said, "What do you, what do you mean?" I thought that was a great, terrible introduction, saying that I'm going to be doing great magic and and I'm a funny man. So they all said, yeah, yeah, make us laugh, funny man. Make us laugh. You don't say that I do comedy. You, listen, we have another show tonight. You're going to walk out there and all you're going to do is say, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have a great time with our headliner. Here's Bobby Baxter. That's all you're going to say. And I said, well, I said, no. He said, no, that's what you're going to say. That's all you're going to say. Now, the thing about Bobby Baxter is that he would take forever. He would get there in the middle of the afternoon and unpack his props and clean everything off and put it all over here. And, containers and then get everything and then and set vegetables. up his act. Cottage cheese. He'd bring his own food because he didn't trust didn't trust any food. This is the real world that he made. <laughs> so crap. Yeah, it's real work. And so he had all this and it took him forever. And so I'd have to keep an eye to see if he was actually ready to go on. That's one of the reasons I would do a long introduction because he would have to be like standing right there ready because if I introduced him, he wasn't ready. I would have to go on and see him. He said, just say that. I said, but Bobby, you're never, he said, just, just say that. Just say you're going to have a great time. Here's our headliner. Great guy. That's it. Just, that's it. Okay. So the second show, I say, oh, folks, I hope you're having a great time. We have a wonderful performer, our headliner for the tonight. You're going to have a wonderful time. When there's Bobby Baxter, and I hear from offstage, keep talking. <laughs> his, I kill him. I kill him. And once you got him so, on. You couldn't get him off. Yeah, you couldn't get him exactly. off. Couldn't get him off. I he can't get him off. really the last place that he worked steadily late in his life. And he worked, he continued to headline for us into his early 80s. <clears throat> and uh, other than the fact that you couldn't get him off the stage, uh, he was, you know, he was fabulous. He was never not bring the house down funny. Yeah. It was a yeah. really extraordinary uh, performer. And he yeah. began working, I mean, during during the Depression, he would, there are these great stories of him going up to very fancy hotels, dressed up to the nines and walking into a party at some point and said, oh, I just finished working at the floor above you, but I'm here, so I can give you a show for a cut rate if you need, because I've already just done one. And then he would get booked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard, uh, maybe this is through the grapevine, that last year there was a show in Michigan, Peter, that you might have done with Todd that might be worth talking about. Oh, well, I don't know if we want to really go into details on this, but this was at East Lansing. This was uh, in Grand Rapids. Remember this show, Todd? Sure. Sure. Exactly. We're, I we're we of it, and I think Peter's face says everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, that's, there's that's show Todd and Michael going over the script for the show, and Todd. Yeah, uh, the, the wonderful experience for Todd and shows just sort of the level of professionalism of this young man uh, is that <laughs> we rehearsed the uh, we rehearsed the show because there were cheerleaders who had shown up and they were going to like carry the boxes for the stack of boxes. We went through, we trained them all, we 
gave them specific boxes to pick up, where to go, the timing of the whole thing. Came to showtime, uh, none of the same people that we've worked with were there. And so we <laughs> had to completely re-choreograph this show on the fly. It was a remarkable experience. And, you know, that's the nice thing about Todd is that uh, he doesn't blanch in the face of these kind of challenges or problems. He will take them uh, head on and, and deal with it. Uh, he's been generous in many yeah, ways, like training other people to do the four chairs. Some people have had disastrous <laughs> experience. <laughs> I want to show that video. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. Yes, you can for a download fee. Uh, go to Penguin <laughs> Video. Um, but the uh, of what not to do. So anyway, uh, who are who are some of the people you've talked to for chairs to, Todd? You have a fabulous routine. Who are some of the people you've um, taught that routine to? Oh, and uh, on the other hand, who are some of the people who've done it who you haven't taught it to? So anyway, Bobby Baxter, uh, I met Bobby Baxter and, and I had been doing a bit. I'd finished off my, my usual show by doing standing ovation bit. And I discovered, just as I discovered with the blockhead, that that was originated by Bobby Baxter. There's a whole story. Make I'm a little clearer right what you're talking about, Todd, for people unfamiliar. I will. I will. It is a bit that at the end of the show... You say to him, folks, I'm coming down to the end of the show. And uh, and I used to do it with my grandfather. He did it with his little son, Timmy. And the way Bobby would do it is he did a magic act and nothing worked. None of the, none of the act. He would come out and do a bird act at the opening to credential himself and actually do something. But it was a very uh, dove act. And then he would go into stand up and then go into the tricks. And that was the form of the act. And all the tricks failed. All the tricks failed. So he came to the end and he was going to do the... the um, uh, linking rings, and he'd come to the end of it. And he said, now, when I finish this, I know that some of the tricks haven't worked, but this is working. And when I do the big chain, that's your signal at the end that I am done. And you know, it, it would be a lovely thing if you enjoy it, if you could give me a standing ovation. Because tonight I'm going to go home to my little apartment at 178th and Amsterdam <laughs> Avenue. Um, it's a, a six floor run up building because you don't walk up those stairs, you run. And I'm going to get to the door and I'm going to open it. And my little son, Timmy, Timmy is going to be there in his bed. And he's going to sit up in the bed. He can't now because of the leg, you know, his bad leg. <laughs> and he's going to say, Daddy, 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 did you get a standing ovation? <laughs> did they like you? Did they, did they really like you? Did they give you a standing yeah. ovation? <laughs> so... Yeah. So, folks, some of the tricks work, but if you liked me a little bit, maybe I could get a standing ovation. Not for me, but for little Timmy. Please don't make me lie to him again. That's it. Don't make me lie. <laughs> so he would play the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he would play, and they, he he would turn to the the, the orchestra uh, and say, you know, play the Star Spangled Banner. All right, at the end of this. All right. Um, and he would do the thing, and then throw the rings down, and pick up all the tricks and finish them. And at the end of it kind of do his, his bow, get down on one knee and kind of do his bow. And it would standing ovation every night. Well, I did a variation of that talking about my grandfather. It was a runner through the whole thing. My grandfather, he lives in the old country, Florida. And, uh, you know, I, he called me uh, earlier and he said, you know, I know you're doing a little magic show tonight and it would be so great if you got a standing ovation. 
And I would go and I'd kind of do a runner on it. And I'd come back to it. And I'd say, you know, I'm coming down to the end here. And I was just thinking of my grandfather. And it's very possible he hasn't been well. And that phone call, well, he might not be with us anymore. That might have been the last time I was. And it's very possible that little thing that he asked for, that little standing ovation here at the end of the act, was his last request. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And then I would finish and I'd bring out a, a large photo of him and, and, and a, uh, Abbott's appearing uh, flag on Flagstaff and wave the thing. So that, that was my idea. So I went up to Bobby and I. Subtlety. Subtlety. I, yeah. So just, I went, just as I said to Melvin, I'm doing Blockhead. If you tell me to stop, I will stop. But I went to Bobby Baxter and I said, Bobby, I, I'd been doing this for a while. It's, it, you know, it's, it's become, a, 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 unfortunately, a well-known bit. A lot of people do it. And I now, I now know it is yours. And so therefore, if you want me to, I will, I will stop and not do this ever again. And he looked at me and said, oh, that's so sweet. He said, yes, don't do it. Don't. <laughs> and I said, well, you know. I really hope that somebody out there edits this video and takes just that moment and provides it yeah. as a gift that we could just send to people. Don't. Yes. Can I do yeah. this? Don't do it. No. Don't do it. So I said, I'll send you a royalty. He said, no, you can do it when I'm dead. Okay, you can do it when I'm dead. There. So uh, I haven't, though he is no longer with us. Uh, but just the, the difference of the, of the, the two. Yeah, because that thing was knocked off. I mean, it became a stock oh. thing to the point that, you know, everybody said, oh, yeah, that. That started with the dinosaurs. And nobody knew that um, no. it was no. Bob. Right. Yeah. And, and Bob Vanishing came with the whole story. Vanishing Kane, the newspaper. Yeah. Vanishing Kane, the newspaper. That's, actually, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, magic, so anyway. Um, we... Uh, we, we 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 would have to mention Michael Chout. Um, so Michael Chout, say hi. Oh, oh my goodness! All there right, we go. thanks, thanks for dressing uh, for the show, Michael, Mike. Special guest appearance. That was great. That was great. Um, and that's a okay. That works. That works. That works for me. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> it's sort of like you know, like the the the, the virus that the, the 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 vaccine they're working on. They take. A little, little bit of a the very toxic thing, and they give it to you, but not enough to kill you. Right. Yeah, and yeah. then you get immunity. So, he does, so, I mean, uh, Michael does have a really sweet story about meeting you the first time. Michael, briefly, could you tell us uh, the first time you encountered Todd Robbins and the impression he made on you? After that, I don't know that I want to tell this story. <laughs> okay, no problem. Okay, good night. <laughs> so what happened was, Michael had been. I'll tell you the story. I'm so sorry. I don't know what keeps happening to my computer. You guys left. So it's 1996. Wait, wait. I just. Uh, you guys left out the part about Bobby Baxter that some guy came to Monday Night Magic, a friend of Stetson's, and did his little Timmy piece on the show before Bobby oh, yeah. showed up at the theater. Do you remember this? No, and and, and and somebody said you've got to tell Bobby that the guy did his bit, and and Bobby flipped out. Yeah. Besides almost killing the guy backstage, he said right, he was so. on, etc. And Todd, I think you talked him off the ledge. Yeah, pro probably, probably. Uh, we well, one little thing. We well, there was one night at. Um, 
uh, in the early days of, of uh, Monday Night Magic that we, we book three acts and they're all doing the linking rings. And yeah, one of them was Turkova. There was another while that picture is on, Todd. I'm just going to interrupt you for a moment. Sure. Because while that picture was on the screen, I was just about to say your timing is perfect, Harrison. Just about to say that we are four of the five people who created Mm -hmm. Monday Night Magic, and the fifth, who was our in-house senior advisor for all the early years of Monday Night Magic, is standing right in the middle there, and that was the late Frank Brents. Who I have seen a remarkable performer, America's Black Magician, toured the world um, and uh, did card manipulation, did a dub bird act, uh, did the most incredible, legendary signature version of Where Do the Ducks Go, but also did stand up, you know, talking comedy, magic, cruise ships, you name it, he'd done it. And uh, he was a mentor to Michael. And, but I had seen him uh, when I was a kid, my teens, there were a couple of years where there were free magic shows at, in Central Park. Um, and and, and uh, when I had gone to one of those shows, when I was about 15, 16 years old, I saw him perform. It was the first time I'd ever seen the double dove, Channing Pollock's double dove live. And I never forgot it. And then all these years later, uh, I got to not only meet, uh, Frank, but work with him, and it was a real pleasure. And in that photo there, you have some performers, some of whom are no doubt recognizable to yeah. your audience. Ozzy does not look thrilled. But who actually start, who actually came up, who were part of the the people, some of just some of the performers who came up at Monday Night Match, including of course Ossie Wynn, Prakash Peru over by Todd, Matt Holdsclaw next to me, and Stuart Palm. That's Stuart. Oh, Palm. Stuart. Oh, Stuart Palm, of course, Stuart Palm. Yeah. From uh, um, who now lives in Hong yeah. Kong, right, right, yeah. So anyway, Todd, you go ahead. I'm sorry, but well, no, actually, uh, Michael was 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 telling a story about how we met back uh, before. Uh, yes. Oh yeah, because yeah. uh, there's a story you tell on stage uh, about Todd, and I think it's uh, it's very sweet. So if you want to tell us that, that would be great. Sure. So in 19- so sorry, what were we talking about? I. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Michael. No, no, no. You have to, you have to tell the story because it is actually really wonderful. Time payback is a bitch. So, um, in 1994, payback. In 1995, um, I was invited by Paul Newman to, um, or his charity, the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. To perform, oh, here, let, me, let me pick up that name you just dropped. There you go. Okay. <laughs> to perform at a um, at, at this charity event, um, and Charlie Reynolds. Max yep. Yeah, Charlie Reynolds and Max there. Yep. And That's Patrick. Patrick Watson next to Charlie Reynolds. Patrick Watson, who was a longtime colleague in the magic world of David Denz, his director of his early shows, The Conjurer. But Patrick Watson was widely referred to in Canada as the Walter Cronkite of Canada. He's a national figure there, dear friend of mine, a national figure there known on uh, for television documentary work. And he also wrote the introduction to one of my books. So there you go. So, I'm sorry, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, so, Michael, you were finishing. Max, 
So it was 1995. I'm, I'm, I'm invited to, um, uh, as part of the evening, they did a, um, they treated all of the benefactors for the whole New Wall Gang camp to a, a show at the Big Apple Circus. And I had never been to the Big Apple Circus. And actually, it's it's really cool because I've been watching the, the, the feed tonight. And this sort of goes back in time to part of what Todd was talking about earlier. Um, because that was the year of the – I call it the Medicine Man, but it was called the Medicine Show. Is that correct, Todd? Medicine Show, yeah. So, so the Medicine Show. And that was the year. And um, the, the show starts. I'd never seen it before. And here comes the um, host – uh, the master of ceremonies uh, comes out of, if I remember correctly, on an elephant. Is that correct, Don? It was a wagon that was pulled by a, a baby uh, African elephant. And and yeah. here he is, bigger than life. And how many people did that tent seat? About three thousand. So and and it was to my recollection, it was completely sold out that night. Three thousand yeah. people, and there is the 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 host of the show, Todd Robbins, who comes out and proceeds to make 3,000 people feel like they were in his living room. And that night, um, after the show, there was, if, Todd, if you remember, there was a, a, an after party um, for all of the benefactors at uh, Labar, mm -hmm. uh, Labar Bat at the time. Mm -hmm. which on 57th Street, yep. Well, or was on 57th Street. And um, uh, there's uh, Mr. Newman, who I had never met. And there comes in the room, Mr. Todd Robbins. And I must say that I was more intimidated um, to introduce myself to Todd because he was the best performer and still is uh, one of the best performers I've ever seen live in my life. And there and there he is. And, and here he is now. And I'm happy to say on a good day, he uh, is my friend. So <laughs> no, that's very sweet. And we're, we're starting to get towards the end of the show. I want to make sure I plug everybody. Uh, you can follow Todd at Todd Robbins on Instagram. He's an incredible podcast mm -hmm. called Abnormalcy. You can follow it at abnormalcypodcast.com. It's available on iTunes and anywhere you get your podcast. Peter Samuelson is Samuelson Magic. Uh, you can also follow him on his website, samuelsonmagic.com. Uh, Jamie Ian Swiss is on Twitter and Instagram at Jamie Ian Swiss. His website is Honest Liar. Uh, he also does uh, incredible consulting work uh, on performance. It's stuff he's done before the pandemic. He's very good at it. Um, <laughs> it continues into the pandemic. Uh, and Michael, uh, what would you like to plug? Um, just come back. So here's the thing. I feel like my internet connection keeps dropping out at like the Lightning. worst moments. That's terrible. It's amazing. At the worst moments. Every so time. so we're, we're coming We're coming down to the, uh, the end here. Let me just say a couple of things that it's been um play dead it's one to kind of tie up uh, some yes please there was a couple of people who did, we did play dead off broadway we did a lot of we did we basically, we basically worked on uh we worked on images we whatever image we wanted we tried to figure out how to do it and and he uh tell him up with an idea he said let's do something about marjorie uh, Marjorie was a medium who uh, did seances in the 1920s in Boston. She was a, a socialite there, and she performed often the seances wearing a kimono and nothing else underneath it, and the kimono would often come off during the seances. She'd perform nude. Uh, and other things would happen in the dark. Um, so we wanted to do something about that. And so Taylor said, what, do we, what if we have a table on stage and... We have a committee of people sitting there like they're attending a seance. And we have a young girl come out in a kimono. 
She takes it off. She's completely naked, climbs up onto the table. Um, she is held by the, the people. She lies down on the table and she's held spread eagle. Um, it would spread eagle by the people there. And you put her into a trance. You reach into her vagina and you birth a ghoul out of her vagina. As one does. Yeah. And, yeah. And I said, this works for me. First words on this, this episode. Well, there you go. <laughs> yes. Uh, so one of the by the way, by the way, I would just like to put forth, I'd just like to put forth how appropriate that we're doing it on this day, the 15th of April, which is usually the day that you send a VIG to the government or you lie to the government that's why they're not getting their VIG. Uh, yeah. It's also the day four years ago that the Boston Marathon was bombed, uh, the Titanic sunk, and Lincoln died from getting a bullet in his head. So perfect day. It's like how appropriate that we're doing that. So, But and I digress. It, and it's the kids so, learn new words day at Google Chat with Harrison It's amusing and educating at the same time, and no additional charge. So, so we're, the idea was that she'd be lying there in Bertha Ghoul and the whole thing, and I said, okay, um, how do we do that? And he said, Tell said, I have no idea. Let's call Johnny Thompson. So he calls Johnny and he says, hi, Johnny, it's Todd and uh, Teller here. We're, we're talking about uh, this idea. And he runs him to the, the beat. Naked girl, spread eagle, reach in the vagina, birth a ghoul. And there's silence. And after a few moments, Johnny says, well, there's five ways you can do that. <laughs> and... I knew at that moment we had a show. We could do anything and it was because of, of, of Johnny Thompson. And so we came up with all these wild ideas and worked very hard. It took about two years to develop it. Uh, and the end result was Play Dead. We did it off-Broadway at the Players Theater, which is the Monday Night Magic, magic Show. And uh, we then, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a simple looking show. It looks like a bare stage with a bunch of boxes. When we did this out at uh, uh, the Geffen, we didn't have the luxury of, of kind of a nice little rundown old theater. So we did a little different dynamic of, of like, this was a collection that I had brought in of all kinds of wild stuff. And um, we uh, did it out at the Geffen and then it was supposed to sit down in other theaters. That didn't happen. So everything was kind of put into storage out in Las Vegas. It's been sitting there. Uh, it looks like it's coming back. Got in the way. It looks like it's coming back. It looks like there's going to be a permanent production of it done out in Los Angeles. I will not be doing it, however. I will, I will oversee it. But it looks like, very possibly, it could be maybe done by Michael Carbonaro in the. Oh, that's amazing! That that's the whole thing full circle. Yes, I know exactly. So Is that, this that's the first time you're talking about this publicly, uh, Todd? Uh, I've I've mentioned to a couple of people, okay. but. I, I mean, we. This is this is our dream. This is what we'd like to do. And the irony of it is, we we know when we um, we basically have a venue out there that we could do it in. Uh, there are people interested in backing it. Uh, what we don't really have is a producer out there that has a good track record for doing live theater in L.A., which is deadly. It's very very difficult to get people to come out. So so we're we're still there's still a couple of pieces that need to be put into place. But it could uh, it could happen within the next year or so. Oh, that would be incredible. In the meantime, I will, uh, if when all of this lifts and we go back to uh, what we normally do, I will uh, be seen standing on stage with bourbon in my hand at the McKittrick Hotel hosting Speakeasy Magic. Speakeasy Magic every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? 
Sure. Why not? <laughs> sure. So anyway, uh, there's a great comment from uh, Alex Boyce, by the way, who we all know and also works on Monday Magic. He said, fill out your surveys and put them in the little box in the lobby, which we yes. would be remiss without adding. Yes. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time. If you have any final last questions, uh, please uh, get them in the comments. Um, but thank you guys so much for, for, for doing this. I know personally, I would not be anywhere where I am without uh, you guys. And I remember being literally like 10 years old and you guys were all my heroes. And it's an unbelievable thing to be able to call your heroes and, and be able to talk you're, to them. Harrison, I like to think of you as the child going to the court appointed psychiatrist having grown <laughs> up in this family. Yes, yeah. I really do. It's, it's, it's an incredible honor to be part of, of the Monday Night Magic family. Um, and, and you guys are, are the reason, honestly, that I, I can do any of the things that I do. So I'm, it's by, the way, by the way, a shout out. I see Chris McDaniel here in the comments and Chris McDaniel has been one of our long time and one of our few non magic performers, but who does his own amazing stuff that, that Todd uh, mentioned yeah. at the wedding show. Also Chris McDaniel is a wonderful performer who's been with, uh, Monday yeah. Night Magic way back since the beginning. Yeah. We've had Chris McDaniel, Dennis Kariakos, uh, Aussie wind. Uh, there's been a ton of uh, Monday Night Magic uh, performers and alums who have been uh, watching this, which is awesome. Uh, but thank you guys so much. Let me plug you guys one more time. Uh, Jamie in Swiss, you can follow him uh, at Jamie in Swiss. Pretty easy to remember. Uh, J-A-M-Y in Swiss. Uh, his website is Honest Liar. Um, and make sure you buy all of his books. And uh, if you are looking for a consultant, he's the guy to go to. Peter Samuelson, uh, the poet of magic, samuelsonmagic.com. Uh, uh, Michael Chow. Um, MondayNightMagic.com. The show hopefully returns soon, but it's MondayNightMagic.com. Uh, my phone is blowing up because I think everybody is having such a great time during this. Um, uh, you guys, uh, is there any last words uh, about Todd you want to share? Uh, no, no. This has been a glorious thing, and uh, I'm, I'm fairly happy that the other guys showed up too. Yeah, exactly. Jamie, Peter, and Michael, thank you guys so much. Uh, Todd Robbins, our uh, our subject, uh, you can follow him in a lot of different ways. You can follow him uh, on his Instagram, at Todd Robbins, his fantastic podcast, abnormalcypodcast.com, Speakeasy Magic uh, with a K, C-K, Speakeasy Magic. Uh, make sure you come to that show. Uh, Todd, thank you so, so much uh, for everything you do. Uh, just an incredible, you're an incredible person and performer. And uh, it is uh, one of the big honors of my life to uh, to, to to be your friend. It's, it's been a joy knowing you, and I'll probably speak to you after this. Yeah, oh, thank God. Whew, thank you. Mwah, thank you so much, Todd. Uh, big round of applause for everybody uh, who was on the show. What, what an incredible episode. Uh, huge thank you to Todd, of course, Peter, Jamie, Michael. Uh, thank you guys so, so very much. Um, and thank you to everybody who's watching. It's unbelievable how much uh, the comments have blown up. So thank you so much. Uh, my name is Harrison Greenbaum. You can follow me at Harrison Comedy. Uh, that's on Twitter and on Instagram. You can also go to harrisongreenbaum.com if you want to check out my tour dates whenever touring resumes. You can join the International Brotherhood of Magicians, magician.org slash join the IBM slash join. They have incredible events all the time. This is every Monday and Wednesday at 7 p.m. EDT, 4 p.m. PDT. Uh, this Monday coming up, we have Max Maven. And this Wednesday, a week from today, we have Mike Cavney and Tina Lennon on their wedding anniversary, their 41st anniversary. They're uh, an incredible uh, uh, couple of magicians. So I'm very excited to be talking to them. I hope you guys tune in for that as well. My name is Harrison Greenbaum. This has been Who Books That? And we'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs>